Hey everybody, this is Heather. Just wanted to give you a quick reminder that Mormon Expression Voices is up and running. So please come check us out at mormonexpression.com forward slash voices. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, Zilpha. And we have um, a wonderful panel to talk about a terrible, not, not necessarily terrible, it, it might be a little depressing, but we're going to be, going to be talking about divorce tonight. Um, and to my left, where he belongs, is the, um, I'm not going to call you bubbly tonight. Uh, I'm kind of tired. <laughs> the worn down John Larson. Hey. <laughs> and then, so, so what does it mean symbolically to be seated at the left hand of Zilpha? <laughs> um, I guess it it just means he's the second counselor tonight. Does second counselor sit on the the left? Yep. Um. Well, or, but that would mean that you're on John's right hand, so maybe you're his first counselor. Hey, hey, I'm in charge. I'm sitting on this side so I can run the podium up and down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, and nice. we're also joined by um, uh, a newcomer to the podcast, Colleen. Hi. Did you say that right? I don't think so. Colleen? Colleen, yeah, you got it. Okay, do you want to um, just briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'll be real brief. Um, I grew up in Northern Virginia, as born raised Mormon, went to BYU, Graduated BYU. Uh, my first marriage was in the temple. Uh, I came to law school back east. Uh, my first marriage, which was a temple marriage, ended in divorce. I have been a practicing divorce attorney in Northern Virginia going on six years now. It's the only type of law I've ever done. And I was very fortunate last November to remarry a wonderful man who has never been Mormon, but is just awesome in every single way I could ever imagine. And I left the church officially in March of 2009. Oh, so you're, you're official, huh? Um, well, no, I'm not (laughs) official in that sense. Um, I, I, I left the church. I came out to my father about six months after that. And I will not remove my name from the rolls because I don't feel like doing that to my parents. That's our, our excuse as well. Yes. Um, did you, um, get divorced before or after law school? Like did the process say, Hey, that's what, that's what I want to do. Um, I got divorced after law school, but as will probably come out in the podcast tonight, my marriage was irrevocably broken well before law school, but well before law school ended. But because of, I got married after my first year of law school because of pressures, largely in part related to the church. I stayed married and tried to stay married until I really just could not bear another day of it. And then you had all that around you saying, I got to get me some of that. Divorce. <laughs> yeah, sure it was. was definitely easier doing what I did for a living to see how simple the process could be, but also couldn't be. Right. Can yeah. you imagine how much it would suck to be getting divorced and your ex is a divorce attorney? 
<laughs> yeah. Is that is that know. Matthew? She was she actually it'd probably be a lot smoother because then she would know not to do all the stupid things that everybody else does. Yeah, yeah. I you mean, just you just fold, I guess. It, it was the process leading up to the the divorce that was pretty arduous, but once it was actually, hey, here's a here's the final paper, sign it. That was pretty seamless. Okay. All right. So we we still need to introduce our other two panelists. Um, we've got Jesse. Hello. And um, why don't you? Do you want me to? Introduce yeah, introduce myself? yourself in the context of this podcast. Okay. Um, I'm a practicing family law attorney. I live here in the Intermountain West, and I, w- I live in a heavily populated, heavily Mormon populated area that uh, most LDS members have probably heard of before. Um, the majority, or, or at least a substantial portion of my practice, is LDS families. Um, I do custody, divorce, um, child support modification, uh, parental rights grandparental rights, every, everything across the board. That's the family law is the majority of my practice. And um, I think there's some interesting elements that will come out as a result of me being here in this area. So excellent. Family I've, been on, I've been on the podcast uh, multiple times before this is seven or eight yes. or nine for me, I think so. Oh, I, I got to mention, I'm very happy to be on tonight and family laws a much nicer way to say what we do. <laughs> yeah, I think being a being a family law attorney is kind of like being an undertaker where every, you tell people that's what you do and they're like, really? How do you mm-hmm. do that every day? But in terms of the practice, I, I actually enjoy it quite a bit because I'm in court a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And there, there's some practice benefits to it. And there's some there's some downside too, but um, we don't have to get into the, the day-to-day aspect of being a lawyer. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm sure it's very interesting. All right, and then we have Matthew. Welcome, Matthew. Good evening. Good to be here again. Good to have you. It's a big night for me, you know. It is? This is episode five. All right, oh, so my. you get a, a bio. You've arrived. We have a new, a-, a new link on the on the website. It's called Contributors. You'll be under that soon. So a gold star on my shirt. So, Matthew, are you either divorced or an attorney? <laughs> the the latter, but not the former. Matt, isn't it the anniversary of your fifteenth date today? That did you, it actually is. That's um, right. <laughs> yeah, so happy anniversary to me. But no, I, I mean, at the risk of you know three fourths of the audience tuning out at this point. Yes, there's a third lawyer here, and it's it's me. Um, I only did a little bit of domestic practice um, very early in my career, so that's not really. What I'm bringing to the table, but I am, I was married in the temple. I still am, I suppose. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I've not ever been divorced. Um, uh, although I do have a, I do have a, a child who is, uh, with a woman I was never married to. So I, I do have some sense of some of the issues that sort of follow, you know, being in the church and, you know, having children and not being married to the mother and et cetera, et cetera. But, um, right. that's, mm-hmm. that's me. All right. Great. Well, let's dig in here. Um, so, uh, divorce and Mormonism. Um, first of all, should we uh, get out some statistics about um, the rates of divorce within Mormonism? Are they different than the national average, for instance? 
I think the age is certainly younger. Yes. You um, mean the, for- the average age of the first divorce? The first marriage. Oh, oh. The, where the marriage starts. Well, there is a difference between um, temple divorce and just civil divorce. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get to the... The difference is one matters and the other doesn't? <laughs> it's hard to get to the actual <laughs> statistics of temple divorce because the church doesn't like that um, Well, published. And they make they it don't. so hard to get that you just kind of give up in the process sometimes. Well, I mean, that, yes. that's sort of silly. Let's make it easy. They're the same. Right. Well, right. I mean, mm, why, why, why would they be different? Why, why, why would that matter at all? You well, know, if you it, were still it, a believer, it would really matter. Yeah. And I have to tell you, even though I'm not a believer, it still matters to me. Um, I, it's just this funny thing when I was getting married for the second time, it really bothered me that here's this entity out there. Here are these, what I consider older men who have nothing to do with my life. And, my ceiling in the temple is still considered something valid to them. And that just, that bothered me. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but it bugged me. I get I, that. I, you, sorry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, it, 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 I started the process and about halfway through became very disgruntled and just decided to leave well enough alone. Well, um, so I found a, um, a research study done by Barna Research. In 1999, and that survey concluded that 24% of Mormon marriages ended in divorce, which was just about identical to the um, national average. Um, okay, that's that's marriages end in divorce because there, there's th- this the figure of divorce gets bantered around all the time, and it's ambiguous. And let me point out the ambiguity because most people don't understand it. They they say the number of people who get divorced or the number of marriages that end in divorce. And they also say the number of... Anyway, you can calculate it by, by saying in 2010, there were X number of marriages and there are X number of divorces. The, ergo, there you know 25% of marriages end in divorce. That's different than if you calculate the number that, that end in of the lifespan of the marriage. The reason that second one, which is what everybody assumes it is, is hard to calculate, is because it's really hard to calculate when a marriage ends naturally. You know, like somebody dying. Mm-hmm. So, so the I, numbers are a little bizarre. They're not a little strange. Yeah. Well, I did read that Mormons are more likely to get divorced in the first five years than the national average, but less likely after that than the national average. Mm-hmm. Um, and back. Oh, I was going to do one one more uh, statistic yeah. from Spencer W. Kimball back in 1976. So this is really outdated, but um, it still might be interesting that he said that 10% of temple marriages were officially dissolved, um, and mm-hmm. half of the Mormons, roughly half of the Mormons getting married, were getting married in the temple in the first place. That statistic, I when I was at BYU, I was a TA in the sociology department, and I did some work with a professor who researched this very issue. And what it was found is that when the Mormon church presents its low divorce rate, that is for temple marriages only, and that number was around somewhere around 11%. But once you just add in the Mormons marrying outside the temple to that percent, it does jump to the national average. Yeah, and, Colleen, was, and, that, was that Daniel Judd? Because I've seen his name pop up a couple places. It was not Daniel Judd. And okay. do those figures exclude annulments? 
Because when I was at BYU, I was amazed how many people <laughs> I ran into who had annulments. The weekend warriors. Wow. Um, they were usually longer than that. They were usually like four months, and then they figured they were completely incompatible, or one of them was batshit crazy. I'm sure that doesn't include annulments because yeah, I would divorce. I would assume that it doesn't include annulments. Annulments are really a, it's a different animal than a oh. divorce. Um, in in my opinion, at least that's that I, it, I don't understand annulments. Like I, I Zilf and I get an annulment. No. Doesn't no. it have no. to be well, within? No, no, no. It's different in every state. The state I practice in, it's nearly, and I looked into it for my own, and it's it's just nearly impossible to get. But every state is different. Um, Nevada, I'm sure they're much easier to get. <laughs> yeah, we have we have them here. I I have a few cases right now that are annulment cases, and um, you know, under the statutes, there there are certain requirements that you have to have. No children. Um, it can't have been a very long duration of a marriage. Um, mm-hmm. There can't be too much property to divide, that sort of thing. It's basically any situation where the parties get married and very quickly thereafter they realize, hey, this is just a bad idea and they want to end it without having to go through such a formal process. In the end, for those people, it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference, but um, it, it can affect people's rights. So, I remember watching, a, a, I think it was a BYU student-made film, um, and this this couple decided to get married in Nevada, so they drove out to Wendover, I believe, got married. Lovely. You know, they were all excited on the way out, and, <laughs> and they did it. And then on the way back, they were, like, squirming in their seats, and they didn't have anything to say to each other, and they just felt so guilty. Um, but mm. anyway, I, apparently that happens sometimes at BYU. So just to verify the rumor, I had a mission companion who had a brother, so... Mm-hmm. And his brother actually did the weekend um, get married in Vegas and the annulment thing. And th- they were both this fellowship for They were BYU students at the time. Where were these people when I was at BYU? The only people I ever knew at BYU were TBMs. I, I never met these open-minded people. Well, they, they were TBMs. That's why they went and got married, so they could have sex. <laughs> That's because no, the super review was gone by the time you were there calling. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, John, that that could happen. That that that's definitely plausible. Yeah. Um. So I want to I want to throw my line in the sand right now and say, um, I don't think socially divorce is a problem. I think in America, we keep talking about divorce as if divorce is a problem. There are problems that cause divorce, but divorce is usually a solution, um, and not a problem. The the reason I think this is relevant in a discussion about Mormonism. And I think other fundamentalist faiths is they see divorce in and of itself as the enemy and they will do whatever they can to combat that, including keeping people either through psychological means or other sort of browbeating in bad marriages. Uh, How much can I agree to that statement? (laughs) Over 100 (laughs) percent? I I would agree, John, um, but with one caveat that the divorce can certainly be even a good thing. Um, the downside that I see are the after effects of divorce. Uh, quite a bit of my practice is taken up by modifications and mm. just bickering between the parties afterwards. And if one party gets hosed in a divorce or if they didn't like how the divorce went down and certainly mm-hmm. their marriage ended badly, that can just create problems for the kids that go years down the road and it can snowball. Now, is that, is that a problem of divorce itself? No, it's really a problem of, underlying relationship issues and um, issues with them personally, but certainly the process of divorce and the um, everything that they have to go through 
in order to get divorced, it, I think it tends to make it worse. Well, it could, go ahead. You guys know what you're talking about, not me. Oh, I would say about 10% of my caseload actually ends up in court, meaning we weren't able to settle. I, I was in court today. Um, and I would agree that when a court tells you what to do, you're going to be much more likely to have animosity and come back. And it's funny that those 10% of my cases usually amount to 100% of my repeat court cases. Whereas if parties can come to an agreement, I very rarely see them again. And that's that's the way to do it. But I, I agree with Jesse that there are underlying problems. However, I would say I see that in I've only had a few LDS clients Um it's common across the board. See, I, I, I have got a complete. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Matt. Well, I was going to say I, I agree with uh, completely with what John said, and I, and I think that children are the perfect example. Now, I, I don't at all discount um, Jesse what you said a minute ago about you know there certainly is a slice of the population that will you know litigate until the children are 18 years old. Um, I don't think that that's a, a, a majority. I or you know even. I don't know, maybe it's a large minority. Um, but I think that there are an awful lot of people for, you know, or, or children for whom that's better. One of the assumptions, um, that I came into adulthood with and, and into practice and, you know, being around other attorneys with is, you know, people hang, and I think this is something you see in the church and here all the time, people hang on for the benefit of their children. And you know, there's no explanation that's offered with that statement. It's just understood. You hang on, and that's better for your children. Um, but that seems to not be true at all. Um, it's very often the case that you know when people are hanging on for the benefit of their children, what that means is that they're modeling a, a very poor, unhappy relationship. Um, you know, they're they're not being able to be their best, you know, or most giving or happiest selves for their children. And so the children are growing up in this environment where they're getting a very skewed idea of what a marriage is. Mom and dad are unhappy. That filters down to the kids. And often, I think as John's uh, suggesting, divorce can be a solution. Now, I'm not, of course, that's, you know, on a case-by-case basis. But I I think that the assumption that exists within the culture that, you know, you hang on and you hang on and you hang on because marriage is, you know, an, an end in itself and divorce is an evil in itself is simply not true. Some relationships work out. Some of them don't. And in many cases, and in a lot of the non-contested cases, either that you guys, you know, see briefly or never see at all because people file them pro se, it's much better for the children. Well, Spencer W. Yeah. Kimball would argue with you. <laughs> oh, would he? I have a judge who said something very poignant. It's always stuck in my head. And he was the judges, luckily, they take the time in custody cases, usually to speak to the clients. And he said, at the end of the day, children don't care what schedule they have. They don't care who they spent more time with. What they care about is their parents didn't fight as much. And so I would wholly agree with Matt that this whole holding on business for the children is very backwards thinking. Children want peace, however they can get it. Well, Spence- Which is not to say that that's a solution for everybody. That you know, no. if you have a problem, you go out, hey, we're better off without each other. And so maybe, you know, to that extent, the, you know, the Mormon tendency to, hey, let's work on it a little bit, that's a good thing. But, you know, the, there's a quick point of diminishing returns on that. And I'm sorry, Zilf, I know I interrupted you. Oh, it's okay. I, I just wanted to um, get Spencer Kimball's point out there. <laughs> um, yeah. He said that the ugly dragon of divorce has entered into our social life. Little known to our grandparents and not even common among our parents, this cancer has come to be so common in our own day 
that nearly every family has been cursed by its destructive machinations? This is one of the principal tools of Satan to destroy faith through breaking up happy homes and bringing frustration of life and distortion of thought. So he, he saw divorce as the cause of break of mm-hmm. men. But, but divorce is the effect of, you know, whatever the underlying thing is. I mean, that's why you can't generalize about it. So, I mean, he, he, he would say that, you know, if, if there's infidelity in a marriage and, you know, if, if, if the leading cause of divorce is infidelity, which, by the way, in asking around in advance of this podcast, that seems to be the thing that comes up all the time. Um, so if, there, if infidelity is the leading cause, you know, and you get a divorce as a result of it, that, you know, that's the enemy, uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. Something's causing the infidelity. It's it's not the infidelity. The, the, that's the tail wagging the dog. There. Exactly. Well, and and in in Mormonism, um, they will define infidelity in such a way that it, that it's it's so in, encompassing. And you know, one thing that's key about that is people do not. If you follow the timeline of their relationship, it's not like they're together in love, together in love, together in love, together in love, and on Thursday. They're, they're emotionally separate and ready for divorce. That, mm-hmm. that, that emotional separation has a long tail. So, so. Can you, I, can I jump in here, John? Yeah, please. Um, cause we're, a lot of us are, we're speaking anecdotally here. So I just wanted to, you know, my, my, uh, lawyer brain is turned on here and I've, I've just got to make a few, um, disclaimer statements before we go any further. Um, I think it's important to note that, you know, we are speaking anecdotally. These aren't quantitative conclusions that we've been able to come to as attorneys. Um, I can speak for my own practice, at least. I think it's very self-selecting because mm-hmm. not even all, not, not all LDS marriages are going to come into my office and, um, and tell me what's going on. It's just those that are divorcing and hiring an attorney a lot of people get divorced and don't ever hire an attorney, which is going to filter out the the less contentious divorces. Um, and typically, those that are willing to hire an attorney have different issues than those that aren't hiring an attorney. Um, the other thing I would say about divorce is that, you know, this is kind of a cliche in the legal world, but um, we say that in criminal cases, the court case involves a bad person at his best. So it's some, some evil guy who's trying to look really good. In divorce cases, it's, it's normally just, you know, average Joe Blow people, but they're at their absolute worst in their life and they're at the most stress and all their secrets are coming out and everybody has baggage and everybody is weird in some way, but in, it's a horrible thing that divorce brings those, those out and it exposes them um, to people. But in the end, it can be very healing for people. I've seen people's lives just change overnight. I mean, I have clients that will call me crying and sobbing because their life, they just feel like their life's in ruins. And once the case is over, you know, a few months go by and it's like they're, they're a brand new person. Um, so I would definitely dis- dispute the, the dragon analogy. Oh, oh, certainly. And I, I'd like to make the same disclaimer when I'm speaking about what I do, I'm not speaking about any particular client and even more so, I'm probably referring to my own personal divorce, which I think I can speak to, um, that I'm not trying to out my client's secrets, but I would agree with Jesse that you, you yeah. see this 
transformation that luckily makes, I think, what we do worth what we do. John and Zilfa, right. these guys are going to have you signing a release by the time this is over. <laughs> well, I, on the other hand, speak God's truth. And if anybody wants to sue me, go ahead and try. Um, so the, um, We don't have to have you sign a release. Just know that you're being billed $1,800 an hour right now. <laughs> Free attorneys I, on the phone. I, I still stand by what I'm saying, which is that that there is a there is a preceding um, emotional separation that 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 divorce happens af- as a sequence um, of events, and Absolutely. oftentimes when we're talking about things like infidelity, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 people respond, "Oh my God, he cheated on her," but I, I think in in many cases that comes after a long period of emotional separation, emotional isolation, and unfortunately, one of the things that we've done in our culture. Is, is we have defined all of these, um, mores, both, um, emotional and sexual and all sorts of things in one particular avenue. Let me give you an example. Um, in, in our culture, if, if somebody in the marriage says the other, the other party was, was, um, was forcing me to have sex, you mean, or force, they rape you. No, no, no. It was just pressure. We'd be like, Oh, he is awful. What a beast. But if we do the opposite and say, um, you know, well, um, this person didn't want to have sex at all, then that, that scene is fine. The, the only reason I'm bringing that up is when you're in a relationship, and I'm using sex as an example, there's all sorts of things like that. We, we, we put ourselves into the hand of the other person. So the other person has control. So what I'm saying is there's sort of this emotional terrorism that can happen on either side. And what's unfortunate is we look at the results of that down the, down the stream. So for a couple to get married and then one partner immediately say, I no longer am interested in sex. You're, you're, you, and you can't masturbate and you can't look at pornography and you can't date and you can't have any sort of emotional intimacy. That is a, that is an, an, a psychological attack of the, of the highest order. And so, so, so what I'm saying is we, we, we say, Oh, he cheated on her. But we oftentimes are ignoring the the baggage that might have led to that sort of situation, right? And I, and I wouldn't condone you know cheating on a spouse, but at the same time, people always ask, well, well, why are they getting divorced, or you know, what caused what what's the number one cause of divorce? And that's like a it's just a question that you can't even answer because it's so complicated. I mean, I I've seen very few cases where there there haven't been just, you know, numerous issues that each independently are all playing off of each other. And it's a complex, messy situation where you have to try and fit all the pieces together. I agree. But Uh, that's because every relationship is a complex, messy, you know, I mean, let's say something as simple as emotional infidelity. Everybody who has been married for a length of time has been emotionally um, unfaithful to some degree or another. Because because it's it's hard not to, I don't know, fantasize about somebody else or 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 talk to somebody else or have a friendship that's maybe a little bit too deep. Um, be, be, because if you define those things so straight, you're you're going to stray from that standard at least one time or the other. Uh, so so it happens. But a good relationship is a dynamic relationship that can bend and move around these things with two live people, as opposed to this this. Spencer Kimball-esque, you know, white snow standard, and then we measure deviance from that. Well, speaking of Spencer, well, I was going to go into pornography, but but, go ahead. ahead. Well, sorry, Matt, Matthew. I I was just going to 
jumping in on what John just said, I, I think the thing that's maybe uniquely LDS about it is that there are so many different expectations that spouses have each of each other in a marriage, and and I think I you know I let the divorce attorney say, but I I think at, at bottom when a marriage fails, it's because needs are being unmet or expectations have gotten mismatched in some way. And so the thing that to me that's uniquely LDS about it is that you take this as as John is suggesting, you mash all of these, you know, different mores and and things into one this one avenue of religion. And so when you marry someone else who's LDS, you think that you're getting certain things along with that package. And there are all kinds of things that wouldn't matter in a non-LDS uh, marriage that all of a sudden become deal breakers. You know, behaviors that would would not matter. I I imagine in in Colleen's marriage, it doesn't matter a whit to to her husband or to her whether the other one goes to church, whether they drink an alcoholic beverage, any number of things. But these things become magnified incredibly within an LDS context, so that those things are are then deal breakers. And so people get into a marriage, and you know, as John's saying, maybe somebody wants to look at porn, or maybe somebody wants to be less active, maybe somebody wants to do you know whatever. And all of a sudden, the other person is saying, well, not only are, are our expectations different, but they're different in this giant way because I, I'm, I didn't get what I bargained for. And here. it doesn't even have to go that far. You can yeah. be a 100% home teacher and say to your spouse, I really don't like home teaching, and that will throw some people way off. Just, just expressing you don't like something. Well, what strikes me about what Matt just said is, um, in, in contrast to the two marriages, I will say my, 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 Husband now is wonderful, um, and in the other room with the door shut, not wanting to listen to this until he listens to the whole thing. He has listened to some of the podcasts, and we listened to the one about pornography. And it's interesting to see a non-Mormon perspective on some of this, where he was just going, what is going on? Um, and it's funny what Matt says about what deal breakers are, um, you know, looking at porn, not wanting to be more active. And those in LDS marriages would be considered deal breakers. Whereas in my first marriage, when there were real legitimate issues about expectations, treatment of the other, life goals, it, issues that would be legitimate issues in any marriage, um, within the LDS church and um, the counsel that I received, those were not issues. In fact, I was, um, I went to my bishop about two years into my marriage and said, I have some serious problems. I do not love my husband. Here are the problems I have with my husband. I named things that ranged from some forms of abuse to, you know, he said he was going to do X, Y, Z with his life and he's not doing that. Real issues that I see in my cases every day and was told by the bishop that my burden in life was to learn to deal with these issues <laughs> and that if I could only learn to deal with this burden in life, I would know happiness in the eternities. Mm. With that same um, husband. Really. With that husband that I literally I, I did not love him. In fact, I could barely tolerate him. But was told because he was still going to church, he was keeping the word of wisdom and in the I think he was in he was in the elders quorum presidency at that time that it was my problem. He was doing everything right. He was doing everything right except everything he was supposed to do. <laughs> he he was doing everything right in the eyes of the church. He just wasn't yeah. good at a relationship. Yeah. Do you mind um, if I jump in here? Kind of, yeah. Okay, go ahead. 
Well, it was just more that when I brought, if I, I had a sister who also got divorced and I, I actually talked to her before I did this and kind of got her perspective. And in her instance, her first husband left the church and she garnered a lot of sympathy for her divorce. It was that is horrible that he left and poor you, you are now a single mother. Um, I, I don't have any children. Whereas in my divorce, I was the one who ultimately asked for it. And what I found was something very different. I did not have a spouse leaving the church. I had a spouse putting on a perception that he was an active card carrying temple worthy member. And I was the one saying as a practicing divorce attorney at the time, which was also another issue all in of itself that I could no longer be in this marriage. And the reaction was extremely different, um, both from my parents and from the church. And it was one of I want to say from the church of outcasting that, you know, sister so-and-so, why are you doing this? Whereas if I had simply just said, oh, my husband is drinking or my husband isn't going to church anymore, which has Matthew, I think, very eloquently stated are such trivial issues in relation to the real ones. I may have had an actual out, but instead I experienced something much different, which much different within the church, which actually fast forwarded my leaving the church. I was on my way out, but my divorce process actually put it on a fast track, given the treatment and things that I read. And I finally just said, I'm done. <laughs> it's over. Both with my marriage and the church. Both marriages were over. <laughs> the end. <laughs> I think, I think what this is leading to is something that I, um, or this is this is making me think of something I've written in my notes, which is, you know, despite the disclaimers that we all gave, I think there's two, at least to me, there's two unique features or themes that really stand out in LDS marriages and that really become prominent um, when it's time for a divorce. The first, I think, is that in general, people who are in an LDS marriage, especially believers, they tend to hang on. They tend to have a higher tolerance um, through struggles and they tend to have more of a will to hang on to the divorce um, and more of an aversion to the divorce. And I think in the end, the percentage who actually end up divorcing is pretty close to the percentage of the population at large. Um, but I think in a lot of LDS cases, it, it takes them longer to get there and they put up with more um, than many other people would. Um, Agreed. That's that's my first kind of general theme that I see with my LDS clients. The second one would just kind of be a general um, just sexual issues, basically. Um, the sexual issues that come into an LDS marriage are very different than the sexual issues that are in non-LDS marriages because of there's so many different dynamics. I think for LDS men... Um, they come into a marriage with this expectation that the marriage is going to become the most sexually liberating and sexually um, exciting time of their life. And a lot of times they're very disappointed um, in what the marriage turns out to be. You know, they go on a mission and they don't masturbate and they come home and they're doing everything they can. And man, they've got to get married right away because, you know, you just, you've got that, you've got those urges and you feel like the right thing to do is to get married. Um, and then they get married to a nice, sweet, 
LDS girl who has maybe never masturbated before, maybe has no idea what her body's doing or what an orgasm feels like and just might not have the same sexual desire and urges. Um, I think there's natural differences in the desire level between men and women, but I think in the LDS context, it seems to be um, exacerbated quite a bit um, because men are trained to keep it in for so long and they don't come into a marriage with a realistic expectation of what's going to happen after they get married. So what happens a few years later, I mean, Silfa mentioned the statistic of the first five or six years being a higher number than the population at large. And I, I see these cases um, where a, a man or husband comes in and says, there's just not enough sex. Everything else, you know, for the most part is good, but he gets married and there just isn't enough sex. And that doesn't really happen as much in a non-LDS marriage because they'd probably have that worked out before they got married. Um, I see masturbation, pornography, uh, to a lesser extent prostitution, um, even with active LDS people, um, but masturbation, pornography, and then issues in their marriage over things like oral sex, um, those three are just, they're huge. And those n- almost never seem to be a problem in a non-LDS marriage. But the the masturbation, the pornography, I can't even tell you how many clients I've had come in with men and women. Um, and it's usually the husband who has the issue with that. But um, I've had grown men sit in my office and talk to me about they're going through addiction recovery program and they've been sober for a year and that sort of thing. And I'm like, wait, 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 sober. You're talking about you haven't masturbated for a year, right? And they're like, yeah, I haven't masturbated for a year. I've been sober for a year. Um, So the, the LDS church has a program called the um, addiction recovery program. And they, you know, if you're a believer and you're, dealing with that and you're trying to save your marriage, that's probably, that's a pretty good likelihood. That's where you're going to get, that's where your bishop's going to send you, or that's where your wife's going to insist you go. For and masturbation? Is, oh yeah. Yep. Wow. For masturbation. If you're, if you're a grown married man who's endowed and sealed in the temple and you're masturbating. <laughs> you let endowed go by that time. So oh, yes. sorry. Well endowed. <laughs> well, uh, endowed. well <laughs> it's, it's definitely, I mean, it's, it's like a 12 step program and the words they use are things like sober and, you know, addiction and those kinds of things. And I've, I've tried to explain to people before that maybe that's not the most healthy way to look at it. But then I have to remember that I'm not their counselor or their clergyman. I'm just their attorney here trying to handle things, but right. um, it can be, it can be frustrating when you're dealing with clients that have just perceptions like that, that you'd really like to change, but that's not really, you know, there is just not really the place for that. I was going to hop in and say that it seems like this sort of Victorian approach to sexuality drives the bus on, on so many things and, and just picking out one of them. Um, you know, this premium that is, that's put on chastity. I was thinking of this as you were talking about the, the missionary who didn't masturbate on his mission, although I don't think that actually exists, but, um, trust, trust, I can, I can tell you it does. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I believe, yeah, I believe I'm kidding you, but, but I mean, but think about, you know, all of the people who, you know, whether it's in Provo or some other setting, um, you know, get married after knowing each other for just a few weeks. 
um, or, you know, get married so young, which isn't always, you know, going to be a predictor of a bad outcome in a marriage. But a huge reason that a lot, a lot of them do that is because it is, you know, it's better to get into a marriage with somebody that you don't truly know, that you haven't known a long time, um, than it is to be unchaste. Uh, it's much worse to have sex with that person, uh, you know, than it is to make a lifetime commitment that, you know, potentially ends in a disastrous, uh, you know, maybe ugly divorce. Um, I mean, talk about cart before the horse. Now, I don't know, you know, theologically how the church gets out of that. I don't, I don't expect it. I'm not encouraging it to, you know, let go of its ideas of chastity. But one of the unintended consequences of that are all these people who get into, you know, marriages assuming because, you know, if, if I'm matched up correctly in terms of, you know, church activity, all this other stuff will work. You know, we don't need to know each other for, you know, a long time. And I, I think that a lot of that leads uh, directly into the issues that you're talking about, Jesse. Jesse, can I ask you a question real quick? Sure. Sorry to turn it on you, but are you still a active member? I am. Okay, that in the reason I ask that distinction is um Jesse, you know, seems to have a lot of experience with LDS divorces whereas myself um the the LDS clients my firm has gotten when they usually come in there's some sort of excitement and we don't get a lot but we we we've gotten a fair amount over the years that I can actually say this what I'm about to say is that they get excited and they think we have the perfect person for your case and I'm actually excluded out of the case by the client um, because they're afraid of the judgment that I might render upon them. Of course, that's I would render nothing of the sort, but um, I've observed the LDS cases, but actually never had the chance. I've only participated in, in two of them um, because there's this fear of judgment. So I, I think it's fascinating that, um, you're, that's why I had to ask if you're still practicing or not, because the fact that I'm not has excluded me from several cases. Um, and no, they're I'm afraid still, I'm going to judge I, them. <laughs> I, I'm still active and a lot of my, um, you know, cases come from my ties here to the community and mm-hmm. things like that. So I don't want to, um, no, alienate myself from someone because of, you know, any kind of perceived unorthodoxy, but in terms of my, my practice, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm an active member of the church and it's mm-hmm. bizarre when you're doing a divorce for somebody who's in your stake or when they're in, you know, the next stake over and you know all the same people and, and that sort of thing. It can, it can be pretty intense. Um, I end up, I, I call bishops quite frequently, um, to get their side of a case. Um, yeah, it's pretty, I mean, I could, I could tell you stories all day long about weird Mormon phenomenon with with marriages and divorces that happen um it's it's pretty incredible sometimes so we've been talking a little bit about sexuality and there's there's one thing i i I do want to point out that if 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 you were outside of the mormon paradigm and um you know a a woman says i divorced my ex-husband because he would never have sex with me um i think outside of the lds paradigm people would say oh okay yeah that makes sense um, inside the LDS paradigm, what's, what's funny is we've tried to basically factor sex out of marriage and, and assume that it's a non-factor. So, mm-hmm. so. Well, because truly righteous people don't have, you know, sexual desires. Right. And that's where yeah. the, the whole concept, you know, Matthew was talking about chastity, which is a completely loaded term inside Mormonism, mm-hmm. you know. Well. Sexuality, that was a huge problem in my first marriage. It, it was a problem from the 
from the day the marriage started. And it's, you know, something that was one of the reasons for the divorce. But I, I think you're right that if you ask someone, you know, outside the church, they're going, okay, well, that that's a normal, legitimate reason. Um, but I, I think that the, I, I don't remember who said it, but whoever talked about the, that we don't have sofa that we don't have sexual desires i think so much most more so for women that is the case that you know you're you're taught to believe at least what i believed is sexual desire was evil you need to suppress it you need to not think about it and then you're supposed to go from zero to 360 in a day and that's just not going to happen well women in the church are taught and and outside the church too but taught to commodify their sexuality that their sexuality is a currency that needs to be mm-hmm. spent saved um, used, bartered for, wh- whatever. And, you right. Know, We're this, not taught to own it. This is a huge problem in Western it's culture. Disgusting. Yeah, yeah. That 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 you know that sex is something that men take from women, and and that women give to men. And and that 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 whole no paradigm needs to needs to go out the door because of the unhealthy sort of things about it. And we and we try to pretend in our in our culture that sex is not a huge driving force in marriage, and of course it is. It's a huge driving force in the the demise of marriages into the existence of marriages. And and hell's bells. It's one of the three main things that we are just designed to do. And um, well, it, it's horrible too. You have these general authorities who, you, you, on one hand, they're saying bad, 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 bad. You get married, wonderful, glorious, enjoy it, awesome. <laughs> and, but, but, but wait, wait, just, they don't. They it's don't like say communing like with that. heaven. They don't just say enjoy it because you know they're saying it's sacred and you need to bring God into your bedroom and. That, you know, they, That's they, true. They, they don't still say enjoy it. it. You know, it's, it's just too much. It's bizarre. Yeah. It's strange. Yeah. So, Jesse, John, I got an example of uh, kind please. of what you're talking about there with your uh, last statement. Is um, you know, a lot of times when I'm giving cons- consultations to clients, I'm telling them, well, these are the bases that you could have sole custody on. You know, because everybody wants to know, well, can I get the kids or can I take the kids? And I say, well, you know, if you can show abuse or some kind of substance problem or if there's like criminal activity or something really severe like that. And it's happened a number of times where I've had LDS women ask me, okay, and does pornography count as one of those? Like they're, Mm -hmm. they'll equate it on the same level as, you know, a a drug addiction or, um, uh, a, a crime to where they, they're almost thinking that a court would consider that that severe. Um, would a court? Um, it's not just LDS not. women. No, no. And the, it's probably not just LDS women. I, and I'm not, I'm not a fan of pornography at all, but the, I see it so much more, um, with, with LDS couples. Um, Zilpha, your question, would it matter to a court at all? No, it wouldn't if it was just regular legal run-of-the-mill pornography. Mm-hmm. If it were something illegal, like I have a case that involves um, serious child pornography issues with a active uh, temple-married LDS couple, wow. and in in those cases, yeah, the court's going to care because it's criminal activity, but it'd be the same thing if the guy was selling meth out of his backyard or um, you know, stealing money or something like that. Anytime there's criminal activity, the court's going to be concerned. Well, there there would be an ick factor if if you're wanting your children and you're you know addicted to child pornography, um, right. that might be a concern. <laughs> right now, I will say I will say that sexual addiction is a real thing. I don't think that you know someone masturbating or you know occasionally looking at pornography is even close to that. But there there genuinely are people that have 
you know, sexual dysfunctions that can be debilitating and that can be serious problems in their personal life and that might not be in the best interest of their kids to be around someone that's like that. So there, there mm-hmm. are those cases. I'm not saying sexual addiction doesn't happen. But you're talking run-of-the-mill, look-at-it-once-in-a-while kind of pornography uh-huh. users. Yeah, and, and I mean, I've had wives that have you know, come, I'm, I'm stereotyping men and women, but honestly, that's mostly what I see. Um, I, I have wives that have come in and said, you know, come into my office and said, you know, I caught him masturbating three months ago. He said he'd never do it again. We went to the bishop. I thought everything was fine. And then I just caught him again. And I'm wondering what my options are for divorce. Well, and, three, stro- three strokes and you're out, right? <laughs> <laughs> but they, I mean, really, a lot of people take it that seriously. To them, it's as bad as cheating on someone. It's a betrayal of not only physically, you know, in their sexual intimacy, but it's also a betrayal of um, them spiritually. And when when a LDS person sees their spiritual marriage start to crumble, they, you know, think that the next logical step is that the the civil marriage is going to crumble um, because they're, they're is somebody really mixing up their postum. Jesse, I, I, Jesse I, I have to agree with you. It's it's so interesting to compare. When I compare my first marriage to my marriage now, the first one being a temple active LDS marriage, and this one being a non temple. Well, Masonic. We did get remarried. We did get married in the Masonic temple, and the irony was completely lost on me about that <laughs> until one of my sisters pointed it out um, in Alexander in somewhere, but. Um, it's that, like, like you said, I mean, if, if I had seen my first husband participating in any of these behaviors, I would have felt absolute betrayal, anger, you know, oh, it's, it's, it's just horrid. Whereas now there's just such more of a reality, rational basis, healthy approach to things. It, it's unreal. And, and I'm not saying that's because I think it's more the person I'm married to, not because of the religion they're involved with. But it's it's interesting how the church would um, influence that with a with a woman if she if she said, "Oh, my husband is doing the you know he's masturbating," and the church would garner sympathy for that. She would find sympathy. She would find support for that position. Whereas outside the church, there is no sympathy or support for that position. In fact, it's kind of almost okay. Um, is it like an everyday problem, or what are we talking about here? Like let's let's discuss the actual reality of it. And it, I think it puts the situation in a much more realistic perspective where the, and this, I think just goes into the whole LDS culture of perfection and perfection is always the goal. And when you're not hitting that perfection, something must be wrong. Right. So, and so, it, it, it just so, creates the marriage. So has our discussion of sexuality climaxed here with Colleen's remarks? <laughs> I really want to talk about unorthodoxy and divorce. I, I do want to get there, but I want to make sure we have a lot of non-Mormon listeners, and I, I want to be absolutely clear. This is a case that, that, that I know of. couple gets married, is happy. They were married for seven years. They described their relationship, both of them, as satisfying and wonderful. One night, she wakes up and finds that her husband is looking at pornography on the Internet and masturbating. She begins divorce proceeding immediately, and the marriage ends. <laughs> the, 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 you giggle, but this is, this is happening, and, and, and it's, we're not talking in hyperbole. This is actually happening. That I've heard multiple women say things like, I thought we had a happy marriage, but he was looking at pornography. 
And the church is facilitating this. People have criticized me for saying things like the church is dangerous. This, this is danger on par of uh, some of the worst things that have happened in society. I, I mean, you're taking what is ostensibly a good relationship for them and the children. And because of these warped views you have about human sexuality, you, you are destroying that thing. And this is an organization that walks around talking about um, the importance of the family when it itself is probably causing as much damage as anything else in the Mormon corridor. But to be fair, I mean, you said war- I'm being fair. <laughs> warped views on um, sexuality. Absolutely. But, I mean, as as someone who was raised LDS... For a With a warped of, view. Yeah. I mean, when you have a warped view, it does not feel warped. Everybody not. else seems like they're warped. That's the s- sinister problem with, with um, cultish behavior. Right. Yeah. The rest of the world is screwed up. <laughs> right. The, the, the problem is that, Zilpha, I think there is a lot of, outside of the LDS church, there is a there's a, so much warped sexuality. I think our society has warped sexual norms as well that are, you know, on each side of the equation, um, I can absolutely back up what John is saying. Those things happen and those are, those are real. And I think that's a little bit more of an extreme situation, although it's not on, it's not implausible and it's not rare. What I think I see happen more frequently is the woman, let's say she catches them masturbating and looking at pornography. Well, what happens to their intimacy level for the next six months after that? It's going to go way down because right. she's going to be thinking about him looking at pornography every time. Um, they're going to start having communication problems. They're probably going to fight more. Um, he's going to feel guilty. He's probably going to start masturbating and doing these things more in secret. Um, he's going to feel more repressed. It's going to, I mean, it's just, it snowballs from one little thing to, um, a, a whole problem within their relationship, and none of it is intrinsically a problem of the masturbation or the pornography itself. It's all a factor of what they've been taught that those things represent. Right, and if you, if you as a believing LDS woman, um, finds your husband looking at por- pornography and masturbating, then not only are you not going to well, you're going to punish him. Because- yeah, exactly. I, I've I've had women describe that to me as he cheated on me, and I say, how do you, how did you find out about the cheating? I walked in on him, and he was looking at pornography and masturbating. Right. That's so not it's like, well, a if you're going to statement for me to hear, if you're going to get it on your own, then I'm not going to give it to you anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Pornography yeah, is to gonna- cheating as watching the NFL is to exercise. Uh, it's not anyway well since we're talking about warped um there is the question posed here as to what a temple wedding is like that may be a very um um sanctimonious uh segue but i i think that's an important question um in the comparison of what a temple wedding is like versus what a non-temple wedding is like i have to tell you my temple wedding I have no idea who did it. I have no idea what he said. I was confused the entire time. I was dressed in some strange things, and it was somewhat of a blur. Um, all I knew at the end was not only was I married, I was married for time and all eternity, and hell be damned, we get divorced. Um, however, the wedding outside the temple, in contrast, we 
got to, we were married by someone that we knew and were very close to. We got to proclaim our love to each other in front of everyone. Um, we actually ended up writing our own vows and it was a very beautiful personal experience that I, I believe enhanced our relationship as opposed to going into a room, doing some rituals and pop, you're married. Right. Um, and like all you I say thought it was, is, yes. it was much more bonding. Yeah, I mean, right. Once again, we have non-Mormons. Um, let me just um, give you a lowdown on <laughs> Zilf and I's marriage. We 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 showed up at the temple and we're immediately separated. The men are pushed to one side, the women are pushed to the other. Um, you know, Zilpha had a wedding dress that covered that didn't go down to her elbow, so that was Wait, unacceptable. Went, you, did you have right to wear to the slip, Zilpha? Um, they were to, they were I, out. They so, were out. So she had to wear a dress that she had never seen before. We each wore these these robes, these white robes over the top of our own clothing and Zilpha was to cover her face. Um, so we were, we were split off from each other and we had a chaperone. Then pretty soon they split us off from our chaperone. They did put us together, but they put us in a room where we sat there the by ourselves. The chaperone would be like John's dad and my mom. Um, all of our guests were funneled into this room where they're not allowed to speak. Um, we came in at the same time, like you said, the sealer who we did not know. Our sealer spoke for 45 minutes about God knows what. Um, when we did the ceremony, we were specifically instructed we were only allowed to say one word, which is yes. Um, with the, the, I'd never heard the ceremony before because I had just gone through the temple the day before. Um, uh-huh. had never experienced that. I didn't know what to expect. They say the words very quickly. Um, at the end, our family was allowed to come give us a hug, but they were told to not dally and to not say anything. They were ushered out of the room, and we were ushered out of the room the other way. Hurry that, along, hurry along. That is a Mormon wedding. <laughs> now let's be clear. Let's be clear, John. On one point, the uh, the actual marriage ceremony, the ordinance itself, is only about two or maybe three minutes long. Yes, um, it's very it's very short. And it has um, to be it, said verbatim. It's more like forty five yes. seconds. It is very short. Yeah, it, it's, it, a it's probably not even two minutes. You're right. It's probably probably somewhere around a minute, I would think. But um, it's very very short. And it's, it's rote. I mean, it's, it's verbatim that they have to, have to say exactly what's in there. And then you just say, yes, yes. And you're good to go. I have a good friend of mine and he well, listens to the podcast. I'm happy to bring him on to verify this. Um, the lecturer was going, on, the, the lecturer, the, the sealer was going on about spousal abuse. And eventually his mother, who was this, um, very quiet, um, woman, very nice, married to a stake president, had to get up and tell the sealer to knock it off that they were. She they said, "This is not going to be an issue for these two. You know, that was the the last time I was in the temple was to see my little sweet cousin, very young, get married, and the sealer went on and on and on, and I could even see, I could see, and Matt might laugh at this, I could see my father and my uncle getting very restless, <laughs> wanting to get out of there. Matt knows my father quite well. Um, I've been in character. I've been in meetings with him where when the time begins to go over the allotted time that he begins to cough and clear his throat and make noise Start until shifting. they bring it to an end. Yeah. Make no mistake though, the man True is a story. he is a TBM and even more so since I've left. I, um but you know, I, I remember I was in there and I'm listening to the sealer drone on and on. It, it probably was at least forty five minutes, and I'm almost jealous it wasn't that short. And it, it, it just struck me. I went, what is going on here? Who is this person? What is his name? What relation does he have to our family? Um, and, and maybe this is just a general question to pose to everyone listening. Um, who knows the name of the person who sealed them? I, I do. 
I do. Oh, very and I, I and I want to say I I am not placing my marriage. I I believe that, and and I can speak to Matt's marriage that I I I know his wife. I know Matt. I know they have an extremely loving, wonderful relationship, and I never doubt that. And I don't think that a temple marriage versus a non-temple marriage makes your marriage better or not. And that's not what I'm saying. Just in my experience, my temple marriage, the what John described, I think is very true. It's very robotic. It's the same. Um, a lot of the things he described, I went, yeah, that happened to me too, because that's usually what happens. Whereas I found that my non-temple marriage was a very personal thing that I cherish. Um, I don't ever remember having those thoughts about my temple wedding just because it was like that. But I, I don't believe that actually defines the marriage and the strength of the marriage. That That is the people. No, yeah. It's interesting. Sure. I, and I was, okay. I was probably fortunate, um, but I, like, I'll be the lone voice of, of dissent here and say my, I was married in the, in the Salt Lake Temple and that was, that was a beautiful ceremony for me. That's, you know, of all the things that I regret or have revised as I've gone out of the church, that's, that's not one of them. Um, we were very lucky, had this, you know, cute little old man who, you know, performed the ceiling, barely came up to my shoulder, you know, had, had very kind and interesting words. Her family was there. My family was there. You know, my wife looked beautiful and I couldn't, I, it's one of the happiest days of my life. So I certainly understand and have been to other ones where you draw somebody that it's, you know, they drone on and on and it's not as pleasant of ex- experience. In fact, one of my brother's Wedding was like that, but they can be beautiful, and I still view mine as being that way. I, well, I think I, this is relevant. I loved being right across the altar from John and holding his hand in that. Typey, typey, type, type, type. <laughs> yeah, who's typing? Um, I'm, no, sorry, I'm sorry. I really I'm did, sorry. and looking into his eyes and knowing that we were getting it was the it was the idea that we were actually getting married that was more important than whatever you know <laughs> or whatever that guy was saying. It was. The person across from me and me, and yeah, that's I mean, all I care there about. There are elements of it that are nice, um, but what, one thing I want the, – the reason this is relevant to our discussion is to – you know, um, Matthew's trying to change the, to- the subject a little bit, and it's probably about time <laughs> – that, that this thing is very rote and very prescribed. And I think a lot of Mormons enter into their relationships with those rote prescribed relationships, and their marriage is oftentimes defined both inside and outside by how successfully people keep to that script. And this worked great in the 50s or or even before that when these were the things the women did, these were the things the men did, and you didn't necessarily need to negotiate relationships because everybody knew what everybody else did. And you weren't necessarily expected to be, like, friends. Yeah, that wasn't yeah, the, or or romance or or sexual compatibility wasn't even an issue. It was um, let's make sure we can the peaches and can survive another season and <laughs> or whatever. And but I think that comes to our question now of of unorthodoxy and apostasy, um, because I think you know sexuality is probably the number one problem for Mormon marriages. Um, where we sit, Zilpha and I, you know, dealing with the podcast and the people we come in contact with, the bigger problem is when one person becomes unorthodox. Mm. I kept my mouth shut during my first marriage. I I knew better than to ever bring that into the flow. One of the things that kept me in my first marriage is my spouse would tell me um, whenever I would bring up the topic of separating or taking some time apart, he'd say, 
what would your parents think? He Uh was very good at that, knowing that my parents would certainly not approve and they would want to see us work it out because on paper he appeared to be a very devout Mormon. In fact, my father, would he gave a talk in church one day. We were in the same ward as my parents for a while, and my father afterwards said, that's bishop material. And I'm like, oh, good grief. <laughs> um, you know, but it was it was hard for me to, if I had ever said to him anything about, hey, by the way, I'm having these separate doubts about the church, immediately he would have run to my parents and said, so, um, you know, Colleen doesn't want to be married to, to me anymore. And by the way, she's having doubts at the church. I, I did um, time things intentionally that I divorced, then left about a year later. Um, I timed that purposely for the sake of my parents and their stress level mm-hmm. in dealing with things. But it was something that doubts in my marriage that wasn't even an option to share. Um, so when I see couples who have gone through it together, I, I'm in awe and I'm, you know, I have to say maybe a little bit envious to say, wow, what a bond that you guys, that you had, that you were able to work through this together, whether one stays active, one is non-active or they go non-active together, or they stay active together. Um, and I think that goes back to what, you know, Zilpa said that she didn't care, you know, she was, she was marrying John and she was so happy about that or John was marrying Zilpha and she, he was so happy about that. Um, that's not the feeling I had when I got married. I felt I'm getting married. I'm going to have a temple marriage. I never thought, you know, I was 22 when I got married and I thought, oh gosh, it's never going to happen for me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) only a 22 year old can think that rationally. I think that's the, that's the excuse I have to give myself. So to go through that together, I think is just such a wonderful thing to be able to have the underlying bond where if you don't though, I think a lot of people, they're not going to say a word. And I, I think the VIP room that just came up is uh, showing that. Well, if they if they do say a word and there's not that already um, very strong um, relationship to um, work through it with, it's going to yeah. cause problems. Have you seen that, Jesse? Absolutely. Um, I think that this happens in two different ways. One is probably more similar to what most of us have gone through, which I would characterize as, as kind of an intellectual uh, disaffection, uh, something based on you know his, historical issues or doctrinal problems that we have. What I and and I've definitely seen that, and that's a, that's a problem. Um, and you know I'm <laughs> without getting into my personal situation too much. Um, my my wife is great, and she's been outstanding throughout my, you know, the struggles that I've had with the church, but, you know, I've, I've dealt with that in my own marriage. But um, the, the second thing, the second category that I would put things in that I think is often more, more common um, isn't so much an intellectual disaffection from the church, but it's maybe more emotional or it's maybe just less well-defined. So instead of people finding out about polyandry, maybe they just start to realize that, Hey, the church isn't working for me and I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not on board with all the church programs anymore. I see that much more frequently, maybe five or 10 times more frequently. Um, I've had couples where they have a homosexual teenager who's now coming out and one spouse is dealing with it in a very orthodox way and is on board with everything the church says. 
and the other spouse isn't. Um, and even something like that, even when they agree on the, the underlying, you know, truth claims of the church, something like that can just cause huge domino effects in their relationship. Um, that's what I see more frequently. Um, some, another example might be where one spouse has started, um, you know, to just be a little bit more lax on some of the, some of the things like, say, he watches rated R movies. Um, and the other spouse is just not on board with that. Again, it creates domino effects in the relationship where their communication is going to go down, their intimacy is going to go down. You know, the, the, the other, the believing spouse is going to be reading their scriptures more and the non-believing spouse is just going to be, you know, they, people just start to diverge and it becomes a very, for, for a lot of complicated reasons, um, that kind of a disaffection can lead to a divorce. Getting back to the first type, those are really, really tricky because there's issues in a divorce where if one spouse feels very strongly about the church one way and the other one feels very strongly about the church the other way, um, legally speaking, it becomes difficult because how do you rate, how do you co-parent a child when you have diametrically opposed views on a religion? How does so the court respond to those issues? The court's usually going to decide to do what's in, quote, the best interest of the children. Um, that's a problem because they're going to usually do, figure out what's in the best interest based on what the parents can prove. So if one parent says, hey, I want to take him to church, and we've been raising him in this church, and we were married in this church, mm. and this is what we've always agreed on, and the other parent says, well, I don't like that church anymore. I don't want to go to it. I think it's bad and evil, and I think it's, um, you know, it's it's potentially harmful. Yeah. Yeah, potentially harmful or it's bad. Um, the court's going to have a hard time understanding that argument. Keep in mind, if you live in an LDS area, the 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 judge, for example, um, might be LDS, and or he might have a lot of LDS friends, and they might not have seen that side of the church before. Um, what we try to do more frequently is we try to write it up in a settlement agreement so we can write it up and say, you know, the mother's allowed to take the child to the church, to LDS church on her weeks and father's allowed to do whatever he wants with the kid on the other weeks. Um, I've been on both sides of that. I've represented mothers that are adamant that, you know, my kid has to go to the LDS church and I don't want him going to any other church. And it's a tough it's a really, really tough negotiation, um, but the court doesn't always decide. The court only decides if the parties can't agree on something. So, so I would agree I mean, it, with it, it. It feels to me like there are a lot of people, at least in the things that I read, who are out there right now from both sides of this issue really grappling with, okay, one of us is disaffected and one of us is not. And the question is, is, is should they stay together? And, and, and I think that there's a real interesting question and, you know, divide in the argument there. So much what I have, of what I have read just really, you know, lights the church up over, well, you know, this is something where people are conditioned to want to leave their spouse and it's not a good reason to leave their spouse or, you know, to end their marriage. And, you know, this is one of these terrible things the church does. But I've had, you know, and, and, and obviously some people are just absolutely in agony over, or, you know, potentially losing a marriage over that. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I've had a couple of people, you know, in discussions I've been sort of privately take me aside and say, look, by the time I got to where I was, you know, ready to be divorced with my spouse, 
we were so diametrically different. We had such different views of the world. We had such different goals for what we wanted out of life. We would have been miserable if we would have stayed together. Getting divorced for us with one of us out of the church was the best thing either of us ever did. And Matt, it's so funny you say that. I, In preparation for this, I read a lot of the general conference talks and the Ensign articles about divorce. And coming from an LDS divorce, I think that's true. My my divorce, while difficult and hard and wouldn't wish it upon anybody, I wouldn't wish divorce on anyone. Even my clients, I I feel for them. I, I truly feel for them. It was the right decision. It was the good decision. But when you read these talks, um, you know, I read the, the Spencer W. Kimball one. I, I can't even discuss, but you know, you, there's one by David B. Haight. The, I think the most recent, most prominent one is by, um, Dallin, um, Oaks. And it's that, okay, if you're a victim of XYZ, Sure, get, you know, maybe divorce, but, you know, I'm reading from it right here that divorce is not an all-purpose solution. Divorce is easier than it was, and bishops do not counsel members to divorce. And the overarching theme I found in all of these articles or talks was that if you get divorced, you are going to be un happy in life. And that to me was such a juxtaposition where I was because in my marriage, I was, I was more unhappy than I could ever imagine. And I was told that I just had to deal with that unhappiness. And it was my own individual decision after years of agony um, to decide, no, I deserve to be happy now. And I, I really got divorced thinking from the church perspective, at least this was from the social pressure and what I felt, and maybe other listeners may feel this way is that, um, I remember the night I told my parents, um, and I was sitting at a restaurant with my mother, who is a sweet, just beautiful woman and sitting with her going and thinking about the divorce and thinking, you know what? No matter what I think about what this is going to do with the church, this she's always going to love me. And immediately, um, and this is just the dynamics of my family, I got in the car and I drove directly to my parents' house. And I told my dad I was going to get divorced because I decided at that point, I don't care if my parents abandon me. I don't care if my friends abandon me. I need to be out of this, and I deserve happiness now. Unfortunately, with the church dichotomy, um, what I experienced and what I've read and my biggest fear, however rational or irrational it was, was the fear that if I went through with this divorce, I would never know happiness. And I have to say that that's um, a very cruel um dogma because it's not true. I know happiness now that I never thought I would have. And the church in their articles tends to say divorce can happen, but no matter what, you will see unhappiness. And that's not always the case. And it doesn't just exist at these two poles either, right? I mean, it's not just people either are going to get out of their marriages and they're going to be wonderfully happy or they're going to stay in them and they're going to be miserable. It seems like there are so many people that I know that are just sort of in a, you know, in a, in a slow burn or a slow simmer kind of where they want to keep it together and they seem to be making it happen on some level, but there are kind of these unresolved issues 
um, or that you know issues that there's a stalemate on, and I and I'm rooting for them, and I hope that they can make it work long term. On the other hand, you know everybody think of all of the really happy couples that you know, where one is really active LDS and the other one's not. It's not easy to think of very many. Yeah, I, I would just love to see a someone from the church recognize. Um, besides, is I mean, really the closest ever I ever saw was in the Dallin H. Oaks article. H. Oaks article where he said, you know, divorce is an option sometimes. And I'm not saying divorce is the answer because people should work at their marriages if you really love someone. But yes, sometimes divorce is the answer and you will be happier divorced. Your children, if you have them, will be happier, but you as a person will be happier and it's okay. And that divorce is not this end game to I will be sad and I will have misery in my life. And that's unfortunately what I didn't find in any of the research that I did with the general conference talks and the enzyme articles. There was always this underlying theme of, yes, you can do this because the church certainly isn't going to come out and say, no, we don't believe in divorce. They have to have something to say they believe in it. But it's always followed by the theme of what I found is, you will experience sadness and pain. Divorce is sadness. Divorce is pain. It's whether you're experiencing it or as Jesse and I, you're helping someone through it. But there is happiness somewhere at the end of the tunnel. And I, I wish there could be a recognition of that through the church. I think it would make a lot of marriages healthier and divorces healthier, healthier and people ultimately more happy in the church and outside the church. Well, I I think that I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say our problem in our society is we don't have nearly enough divorce. We need much, much <laughs> more of it. Um, and one of the I can't work anymore. One of the problems is uh, we still talk about marriages failing. Um, human beings. Oh, okay, I I cannot live with 99.999% of the human population, and I don't expect anybody else to either. So, and people change, people are different. You know, we talk about unorthodoxy, we talk about apostasy, we talk about sexual needs changing over time. And I, I wish our society and our church and us in general would get better at saying, we just, we just changed, we had a good run, and, and we have made it as difficult as possible financially, emotionally, socially, logistically. structurally, logistically for people to separate. And we don't say, it's not okay to say, uh, yeah, they were together for 14 years, really happy. They decided to go pet separate ways. Isn't that wonderful? It should be as easy to get a divorce as it is to get a marriage. No one should be harder to get married. It should be. <laughs> exactly. Let me, just, let me just tell you, no one is going to enter into divorce has something they're running into with arms wide open. It is such a... I see it in my clients. I see it in my personal. I saw it in my own personal experience. It, it is not something you want to consider. When you sign that property settlement agreement or you, when you hear that judge rule in your case, it, it is one of the hardest things you will do in your life. And for anyone who wants to say, and I think the church is somewhat guilty of this, they talk about the no-fault divorce laws and how easy divorce is to get. It is not easy. It is difficult. You are severing a relationship with someone you promise to be with either for time and all eternity or for the rest of your life. But you made a commitment and you're now saying, 
I'm not going to keep that commitment. And I think for just to use the same statistic that John used for 99.9% of the population, that's a difficult and hard thing. And to think that someone just whimsically enters into that, it's, it's just not the case. Um, people sometimes look at my, my first marriage. It was a shorter marriage. There were no children. And they think, oh, how easy for you. It wasn't easy. It was right. necessary, but it wasn't well, something that I ran into. And I'm Do you not think it should be made easier if possible? I think it should be made easier. Um, I think one of the ways the churches could make the church could make it easier, at least in my experience from what I went through, is the cultural reaction to it mm-hmm. and the maybe the council on it. it it's okay. I, I, I think a bishop should be able to say, you know what? As an objective observer, this maybe isn't working. And I, I have to tell you, I think that if I would, if any client had come to me with the issues that I went to my bishop with, I would have told my client, yeah, you need to end your marriage. And this is why. And this is not good, but instead what I, what I was told, and I understand it's a, I think a Heather in some podcast said it's a box of crayons and you never know what you're going to get. And that, I think that's very true. What I got was, this is your burden in life. Right. And, and we can't predict. That's, that's, that's my that. whole point. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, and I, I'm not talking about whimsy. I'm just talking about social acceptance that people can't stay together. Not everybody can stay together for that exactly. much time. And, and why it's, make it, it harder on them? By, you know, it's pushing them enough. off to the outskirts of society. Speaking, it's hard speak, enough. Yeah. Sp- speaking of, of how di- easy or difficult it can be to get out, does somebody want to address the issue of getting a, a clearance versus a cancellation? So I think mm. there's some interesting issues wrapped up in that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, it, you know, I think that's kind of a reflection of what we're talking about here is that the church has this very formal legalistic process um, that after you've gone through a civil divorce, there there are two separate things. Um, one is called a clearance, and the other one's called a cancellation. A man, when he <laughs> if he gets divorced and wants to remarry in the temple, um, he has to request for a clearance in order to be sealed to a second wife. Um, when a woman wants to is when a woman is married in the temple and then subsequently divorces and wants to be remarried in the temple, she has to ask for a cancellation. So whereas the man gets permission for for a number two, the woman gets number one wiped off, and then she gets a new one put in its place. What, um, what if so the man they, wants the, a cancellation? Can he get one? The, the man can ask for a cancellation. Um, I don't see those very frequently and it's in my experience from what i've seen it's easier for a man to get a clearance than it is for a woman to get a cancellation yeah there's, there's yeah, also- usually usually they don't they don't want to give that cancellation because the idea that underpins that is that they want the you know, even though she's divorced they want the woman to have the benefit of the ceiling and so right. they don't want her to be released from those blessings until she's ready to make that commitment with someone else. So I right. apparently know a ton of men who have remarried and their ex hasn't, and they are polygamists. And there's a sinister right. practice the church, and I, I think the church has discarded this practice, but people can correct me. In, in, in olden days, if a woman was sealed to a man and got divorced, 
and then married civilly another man and had children by the second man. When they died and they did their, their temple work, they would seal the children from the second marriage to the first man. Oh, the God, one I that she was John. sealed to. Oh, John. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to... Yeah, I, yeah. I hope I hope that's not I, mean, I I started the cancellation process, and it wasn't because I was getting remarried in the Mormon temple. I wasn't. Um, it was just because I felt, you know what? No, I am committing fully to my husband, um, and I I want this gone. I don't want anything saying I'm still bound married. to this. <laughs> still with this person. And I started the, the process. I went through to my Bishop and the process was, and, and people could have such very variants of experiences here. I have checked this experience with some people I know who've gone through the process. It's rare. And I've gotten some sort of confirmation that what I've gone through is not, um, completely wrong or not to say it's, uh, it's uncommon, but what I was told in my interview was, you know, I explained the reasons why I wanted the cancellation and also explained, um, you know, why the marriage failed. And the question that was posed to me was, what did I do wrong in my first marriage? And why was it my fault that the marriage ended? And <laughs> that's a hard question to answer to someone that you don't know. But as I tried to answer it, it also became at least communicated to me that, well, that's well and great that I'm saying this. They're going to need to check it out with my former spouse and they're, you know, and then I'll need to go talk to someone else and the, probably the stake president. It's, it's interesting. And Jesse, you, you'll under, maybe understand this in my, my first husband and I did a settlement agreement and in the settlement agreement, we actually put a clause in, this is personal, but I'll, I'll share it because I think it's poignant to people that are listening, that no spouse shall take any action to preclude the other from canceling the ceiling. Um, I, that was important because if, it, if, in fact, anyone wanted to cancel the ceiling, we wanted to be able to do it. But what I found was within the church that unless I admitted complete fault for my marriage, and spilled very intimate details of my marriage to people that I didn't really know, I wouldn't be able to get that cancellation. So I, I did stop the process after the interview with the bishop. In fact, I stopped it during the interview. He wanted to know details um, about our sexual life, and I wasn't comfortable sharing those. And I found I felt very, I hate to use this word, but almost victimized that you know, here I am, we are civilly divorced. I'm simply asking for this for what I see as rational reasons, but I have to go through this whole process again. And it, it should oh, be it automatic. Was, that's a road bump. If, if, with if, a civil if, if, divorce. If I, if I could jump in on you for a second, Please. I think you hit on one of my sort of macro level complaints is that you're talking about, unless I did A, B, or C, I wasn't going to get it. But this is one of the complaints that I've heard from a number of people. You, you apply for this cancellation from the first presidency, right? It gets sent up by a stake president or bishop with a recommend. Somebody up at the office of the first presidency reviews that application, and there is a set of criteria that they use to decide whether they're going to grant that or not. Nobody knows what that set of criteria is. They don't share that with anybody. 
So mm -hmm. you want to get your cancellation. You don't have the first clue what you need to say in, in order to get it. A, a good friend of mine had the experience of making his at, you know, had been divorced for several years, had met a wonderful new woman. They apply for the cancellation. They get, you know, and are very excited. The bishop and the stake president are supportive. And the answer comes back from the uh, first presidency. The answer is no. You may reapply in six months. And the question was, well, why wasn't it approved? Well, what do we need to do differently in six months? And there's just dead silence on that issue. Nobody has – I'm sure they know up in that office. But for people who are asking for it, they don't have any idea what the criteria this are. This whole process is right. sick I, and twisted. And what's the, the, what's the point of that? I mean, honestly, what what possible gain can they get from stopping people – who want to just move on with their lives. Control and manipulation. So. It's the same reason. Yeah, they put those it's little so, old. It's so malicious to me. They don't have to report it in their statistics. One of the things when I was the TA, oh, when yeah. I participated in studies is it was the temple divorce rate or temple cancellation because there's no such thing as a temple divorce at all. I think I agree with Jesse. That's an absolute misnomer versus the actual divorce rate. According to the Mormon church, I'm still sealed. There's there's been no cancellation. There's been no <laughs> divorce, and I'm still counted in their statistics as someone who's married. And and, and to me, as someone who is a hundred and twenty percent committed to their sp to their non Mormon wonderful spouse, that's extremely offensive. But I have to tell you, going through the process, it, the very front stages of it, I couldn't go through it. And so I just said, wow, you know, if um, at the end of all of this, if, if, if the Mormons are right, good for them. And if I get up to heaven and, wow, I'm stuck with my first husband, I'll have to deal with it then. But I just can't believe in a God who thinks that. So I've, that's right. how I rationalized it in my head. <laughs> okay, so let's be clear on the procedure. In order, to, in order to even apply for a cancellation or a clearance, you have to go and speak with both the bishop and the stake president. They have to fill out an application for that, and they send it to the first presidency. The application isn't something that you can even look at. It's not even in the church. It's not even in the church handbook. Um, the the church, if you're a bishop or a stake president that's in an area where they have electronic record keeping, which is you know places like North America and most uh, most of the rest of the technological world, they they fill it out on the computer and then they send it to Salt Lake and you don't even ever see what they are going to send in. Um, and then they're going to come back with an answer for you. And the time frame is out of your control. You don't know if they're going to come back in a week or a month or three months. Um, I've heard people waiting so long that they just said, screw it, we're getting married. And then <laughs> they get civilly married. And a week later they find out, oh, you're, your temple cancellation or your, your clearance was approved, your cancellation was approved. But then according to the rules of the handbook, they can't go right back to the, to the temple to get sealed. They then have to wait a year because they got married civilly first. Um, if you read through the, the handbook, there's about four or five pages of instructions. And I, I have to keep a copy in my office because I have people ask about this and it's extremely complicated. I mean, people, if you want to know if you're if you're a woman and you're getting divorced and you have um, met a new guy and let's say he's not Mormon or you're not getting married in the temple mm -hmm. and you have a children you have a child with him, the rules for whether or not that child is quote born in the covenant are 
are so complicated. Oh, it, it, your ex-husband marrying someone else or not can affect the status of that new child, whether his, his status relative to the church. Um, that it's just, crazy. it's completely legalistic. Honestly, reading those three or four or five pages, it's, it's as bad as reading any, any state statute that you'll find. You should out read there. in, uh, Devery Anderson's book on the temple where they go into the, these are letters back and forth. But when a woman who is married in the temple to a white man, um, you know, got a divorce <laughs> without a temple, then had children by a black man. Oh, the legalism. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. I, well, the, uh, when I was reading through that, I was thinking back to my law school days, and the one thing the law school professors will do is they'll give you a single set of facts that hits on every possible area that they could come up with. So I was trying to come up with a scenario where, you know, a husband <laughs> and wife were were married in the temple, and then there was adultery because there's separate rules if adultery happens. Um, and then, you know, another spouse ends up leaving the church and then there's a child born out of wedlock and then the other spouse wants to get remarried and then there's another child born. I mean, it's just the it's it's all over the place, but they've got rules for each one of those scenarios. See, you guys are a lot nicer than me in ascribing it to the church's proclivity to statistics. Um, I, I think that, and this sort of wraps up my whole thought about marriage and, and this stuff in the church. It's about control. It's the same reason that they have a little old guy who you don't know preside over your, your, your wedding. It's the church pissing all over everything saying, see, we can take the most important thing in your life and we can do whatever we want with it. You're in our house. You're obeying our rules. We will, we will show you that that is the case. We will show you that you have no control at this point. And marriage has been the church's chief control mechanism for its membership. And that's why they fight so hard. I mean, look, let's be honest. Families are forever is nonsense. It's complete and utter nonsense. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, when you talk about everybody being resurrected. So, so what it really is, is we are going to use this mechanism to control our, our membership. And that's why it's so important to them. And that's probably why I say, and that's, that's why they're so willing to sacrifice people who have small problems of pornography, people who have problems with apostasy, they're willing to, to, to shit all over that because the church's chief control mechanism is at risk. I hate to sound cynical, but you know, in the, in the years that we've been involved with the, 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 um, communities of people who struggle with the church, leaving the church, this is like the issue. And I'm tired. I'm tired of watching all these marriages fall apart. I'm tired of, of the devastation that doesn't have to be that way. And it's just, it's just heartbreaking. Well, John, I'm 100 percent with you, John, on that. I I agree with everything you just said, and I see the same thing happen. And it's it's horrible and it's malicious. And one of the one of the ways that I find the, the biggest way that I find fault with the church leaders today is for them being so silent on the issue of, of what to do when a spouse disaffects, and for them to stand by and let this happen is an absolute tragedy. And it's it's horrible. And it's I, I I lay it directly at the feet of the church leaders. John, I agree with you as well. I actually I'm involved in a post Mormon group, and I'm actually it's nice to kind of be the outsider in that group. I'm the one person who is not married to a Mormon, and some of them are going through it together. Some of them are going to going through it separately. But I am married to a non Mormon. My spouse and I never dealt with that. And I never said a word to my former spouse about any of my doubts in the church. But I, I think I agree with you that it is a control mechanism. Mechanism, I think it is, is 
important to say that when I spoke with a bishop very seriously for about two and a half hours about the very serious problems in my marriage, that was two years before I actually had the strength and the mental capacity and confidence to end my marriage. It is absolutely, from what I saw, a control mechanism. I felt that I would lose everything because I was was leaving my spouse. Um, I would lose my status in the church. I spent a long time. I came across the church handbook of instruction. I read it and got very, very angry. Um, you lose your spouse. Of, you lose your children. You lose your parents. You lose all your friends. I I was under the going back to my thought process when I was going through my divorce and seriously contemplating it because I knew that's what I had to do for myself. I was under the mindset and I, I don't think I'm alone here that I was going to lose everything. I was going to lose the relationship with my parents. I was going to lose my spouse. I was okay with that and lose so much more. But at the end I had to finally say, you know what? I need to be happy. And the church was not giving me the guidance on that. The church was telling me, no, sister so-and-so, you need to stay in this marriage. Because I, I, I Zilpha brought up earlier that Spencer W. Kimball talk. It makes me enraged that any two testimony abiding members can have a happy marriage. And that's what the church does is it says your marriage isn't happy oh, but wait, what are you doing wrong? What is wrong with your testimony? And I spent years trying to figure out what was wrong with my belief, what was wrong with me. There was nothing wrong with me. There was just something wrong with the relationship. And that's a that's an okay thing. But to come to that realization and so thankfully before I had children, I, I, I do have to wonder how many people are listening to this that, they have children and children. I think we've all said this. Children can keep you in. Before you have children, what do you do? And I do think there's a pervasiveness in the LDS society that you get married, you have children right away. I even remember my first marriage. We were married for technically five years. And I think even three years into the marriage, people started to question, why don't you have children yet? I knew why we didn't have kids yet, and I knew we were never going to have kids together because of what I felt. But I, I believe that once you have kids, the landscape changes, and there's a fee there, there's part of feeling trapped, and you should never have to feel trapped. But I, I agree with John completely. It is a control mechanism. At least that is the way that I truly felt, and I love being in a marriage now that. I don't feel controlled by anyone except myself. It's, it's I, just I, amazing. I think of all these people I know who, you know, desperately would like to be honest with the people in their lives, you know, desperately would like to, you know, break out of, you know, pretending at some level, but they also desperately want to raise their children. Um, and I, and I'm thinking particularly of the men now. Um, yes. you know, because as the, you know, divorce lawyers here know, um, unless mom's, you know, screwing up pretty badly, she's going to wind <laughs> up with the kids. So, yeah. I mean, as, as a man, you're sort of caught with this, you know, how painful is it for me to keep my head down and pretend? 
as opposed to how painful is it going to be for me to not raise my children any longer, to see them on weekends. Uh, that is an awful choice to be caught in. Well, yeah, lo- losing the kids, poverty, you know, f- financial ruin. I mean, it, the, the consequences are so serious. Um, it's, it's, it's just heartbreaking. But go ahead. Well, Sophie. and like we were, like um, Colleen was saying, um, that there are ramifications socially within the church if you're divorced and um, you're looked down upon like like a failure. Actually, I think it's not, not so much that you're looked down upon as a failure. You're looked upon with suspicion. And there's this other quote from, from Spencer Kimball from the same talk, and he says, every divorce is the result of selfishness on the part of one or the other or both parties to a marriage contract. Someone is thinking of self-comforts, conveniences, freedoms, luxuries, or ease. I'm, I met a fella a few years back, and they were out in the mission field somewhere, so it was a ward that covered a lot of territory, and he and his wife got a divorce. It was a standard divorce. Neither of them have done anything really awful. But he was still a believer. He was drummed out of the ward because the ward had to take sides, and most of the people sided with his wife. And he was eventually asked not to come back to church because they couldn't have them both attending the same ward. Because the, the church has the narrative, the, the membership has the narrative that somebody sinned. And this is the same thing that happens to people who, who suffer from apostasy. They have to fit in one of those pigeonhole things. They had to do something terribly wrong, and they're going to make that true. Can someone who's divorced be a bishop? No. Yes. They, yes. Oh, they can. Someone who's divorced can be a bishop as long as they've remarried. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. You the, can't be. You can't be an cannot, unmarried bishop. You can't. You can be a divorced no. and then remarried bishop. No way. You can never be a seminary teacher in the CES um, curriculum. Like you can be a seminary teacher, maybe called in your ward. But not within the church educational system, I oh guess the gosh. professional seminary. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, I mean, I have to say in my, in my own experience is that someone's going to get vilified. And I have to say, because I was asking for the divorce and maybe this is true for the men too. I was absolutely vilified and my husband played, my ex-husband, he, he played the victim very well and, as a result, my friends that were LDS no longer became my friends. I actually had one friend just tell me, you know what, it's just too hard. And for, you know, going off what John said, that's the reason why I timed it. I, I timed my divorce and my leaving the church the way I did, because I knew if I got divorced and left the church at the same time, my leaving the church would always be tied with the divorce. And they'd say, oh, she left because she got divorced. And that's not why I left. I don't mean to I was, bust your bubble, I was but I'm sure, they're still, I'm, st- I'm sure they're still saying that. I- I'm sure. Oh, no. it's that's Unfortunately, that, 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 that is what is mainly said. It's like, oh, you know, Colleen had a bad first marriage, and it, it just sh- shook her faith. And it could be nothing further from wh- the reasons why I left. But... I, I didn't want that stigma on it, but as far as someone's going to take the blame, it's it's true. And when you're the person taking the blame, it's hard. But you also just kind of accept the reality. You know what? I have to take it and move on. So moving on. Um, <laughs> oh God! <laughs> well, in two senses, how is it moving on after um, after um, you were married? Just real quick, so we can so very we can seal very this quick. Up. This is, this is easy. Um, 
I moved on and I was extremely fortunate that I met my husband, my, my current husband now, um, very soon after I moved, I, I moved on from my divorce, which was a complete anomaly. But unfortunately, one of the first things he Googled before we went on our first date was what it's like to date a Mormon. <laughs> and certain things came up on the internet. Certain pieces of clothing came up on the internet. <laughs> and, it's it's another world. I'll just tell you that. <laughs> and he was kind of hot for all that, huh? <laughs> Not really. At least he I was think, willing to um, give it a try. Can, can I? I will. I will freely admit that um, while I had not worn my garments for a long time, I did purposely wear them on our first few dates just to be who I was. Um, <laughs> so if your 16-year-old daughters are 14 or whatever age they are starting to date, I highly recommend. I've known enough missionaries to know that doesn't stop people from. <laughs> yeah. It, it, was hard to, it was hard to hear from him, though. I think on our maybe fifth or sixth date, he said, you know, when we first started dating, I Googled what it meant to date a Mormon, and I think I just kind of put my head down. <laughs> it's I, hard. I won't give out but, the URL, but I know of a porn fetish site that's centered around garments oh yeah I don't know. yeah <laughs> uh, it, it's a yeah it's a it's a it's a game but you you can move on and you can find happiness and and you can do that whether an lds relationship or a non-lds relationship what's important is you're you love the person that you're married to and as long as you have that underlying love i i think that's what's going to get you through any of the hard times whether leaving the church or not but as long as you have that underlying love you can absolutely when i think as human beings we're not wired to be happy all the time but we're definitely not wired to be miserable either you know <laughs> there there is a silver lining and how many people have you know you guys have met the the, the a lot of divorced people and most people have how many people do you know who regret their divorce? No one. You know, we talk no about nobody. we talk about success of marriage. The success rate of divorce is near ninety nine percent because um, <laughs> there's very few people who go back. You know, well there are there are people who go back though. We we have clients that um, we've done you know two divorces for them on the same person. So it does two it does happen. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I, I had a great aunt and uncle who were married three times to each other. <laughs> Um, yeah. so yeah, it, I mean, it, it happens, but I, I think that the, we, you know, we've talked about how difficult it is, especially in the issue of, of apostasy and where one person changes, but when they come out the other side, you know, it doesn't have to be a miserable thing. And, and, you know, where we've, we've been asked for advice before, talk to friends. And what I tell people now is, look, give it 12 months to see if one of your budges and then get a divorce. Because I, I think 95% of the interfaith marriages where one left, they don't work. Neither person's going to be happy. That's not what the one who stays wants. It's not what the one who leaves wants. And it's, it's unfortunate that it's come to me saying that, but that's just from 10 years of observation. And, and that's only if you're unhappy in your marriage, obviously. Yeah. And you can right. stay. And, and I know my example is I, I'm certainly, I got divorced. I left and I buried in a Mormon. You, I'm sure that you can stay Mormon and marry a Mormon and have a happy marriage. The, the, the purpose is not whether you're married to a Mormon or not or whether you're Mormon. It's 
are you in love with the person that you're married to? That's the key question you have to ask yourself. So in no way am I advocating that if you get divorced, you must leave the Mormon church to find happiness. Of course, I'm sure you can find it somewhere else. Um, there's social issues with that, of course. Um, but it's well, about being in love, not about your religion. But, and I would say that even, even saying it's about being in love, um, I, I don't know if I can advocate that because your your feelings and emotions change, you know, all the time and the relationship goes through different um, stages mm-hmm. and stuff. So you're not always going to feel in love like you were, no. you know, the first year or the first two oh, years or whatever. It changes and, and, and love can be um, less exciting, but mm-hmm. deeper. I mean, so yeah, it doesn't think, have to be thrilling and exciting all the time to be to be satisfying. And I, I guess maybe I'll qualify. It's the the commitment to the person that uh, he he's asleep now. Now he can't hear me, but I don't always love you know. I always love my husband. I don't always like him, <laughs> but it's that underlying. You know what? We're in this, and I'm committed to you. It's it's the commitment that matters, and. You can have that in any relationship with any religion. It doesn't have to be Mormon, non-Mormon. You don't have to leave the Mormon church. You can leave the Mormon church. Um, you know, anyone who leaves the church, I think they need to leave for their own reasons. And leaving because I had a bad marriage, that might not hold up in the long run. You've, you've got to look at the doctrine, I think. Right. And, and really there's much better reasons beliefs. to leave the church. Overall, the good just needs to outweigh the bad. Absolutely. So, d- does anyone else have a final thought on this uh, divorce topic? All right. Um, well, the discussion, I'm sure, will continue on our website, mormonexpression.com. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>